Hello and welcome. Erin Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchcut Opera and myself, Genevieve Lang, sitting here opposite each other, socially distanced, staying safe, to talk to each other and to you about the first Pinchcut program for this year, which is not an opera, is it Erin? It is not, Genevieve. It's a concert. <laughs> and I think because of that, we can afford to, we're not talking about costumes, set, direction, stage design, anything like that. We can afford to take a deeper dive into the music today, if that's okay with you. Great. Yeah, great. So Monteverdi is our composer on the pedestal for this program. Talk to me about where he was in his life and what he was doing at the time that he was writing this music. Well, we had such a wonderful time last year doing our Vespers tour, and I think our audiences just reveled in the purity and the grandeur of Monteverdi's sound. And because we've sort of built up a reputation doing this music, I really wanted to repeat uh, a similar program. Um, and of course, Monteverdi's, after the Vespers, his second greatest spiritual collection of published music is this amazing collection that he wrote in the 1640s called Selva Morale e Spirituale, which is a bit of a weird name. And it just means um, spiritual and moral forest. So Selva is the Italian word for forest. It's an unusual name to us now, but actually lots of publications in the 17th century used the word forest or garden. And it's sort of to, it was a literary device to let the reader uh, know that the collection within the publication was diverse, like a forest. Lots of little trees, lots of little different things, not all the same, but extremely varied. And this is a, a boon for artistic directors like myself because, and in fact, people of the time who were organising sacred music from these collections, um, you can pick and choose music from this vast collection. So whereas the Vespers of the 1610s, you can perform complete as we did last year, to perform the Selve Morale et Spirituale complete would take like four hours. So I've just chosen from that collection um, quite simply works that I find beautiful and arrange them in a pleasing fashion, which is entirely in keeping with the 17th century idea and also Monteverdi's pragmatic intent behind this work. Just on the title, the, the spiritual and moral forest, what yeah. is that referring to? So we just called our presentation the spiritual forest because within that collection there are a whole bunch of Italian madrigals and we're not presenting those. So that's the moral part. So there's the spiritual forest, which is all the text taken from the liturgy. Dixit Dominus's, Salve Regina's, Laudate Dominum's, all the things that would have actually taken place in a, in a uh, practical religious service. And then uh, the Italian madrigals were sort of meant for moral contemplation in private. And they weren't necessarily on religious matters, though a lot of the, the texts are. But we, we've chosen not to present those in this presentation. That's, a, that's another, another pinch cut event. Um, so we, we got rid of the moral bit and we're just keeping the spiritual bit. <laughs> and also I should say that the spiritual uh, works in the publication are the concerted works. So they involve instruments. And that's what we wanted to showcase in this, in this season. Right. Beautiful. Well, that's a really um, easily digestible explanation. Monteverdi had arrived in Venice by this point. He'd spent two or three decades in the court of Mantua before that, and that wasn't an entirely happy time for him. So talk to me and us about how he came to be in Venice. What was, what was his entry into that? 
and then what were his responsibilities, if you can talk to that, uh, working at St Mark's? Because it sounds like it was an enormous job. Yeah, absolutely. It was Monteverdi's um, sort of the pinnacle of his career to get this position as maestro of the, of the chapel of St Mark's. Um, and when we talked about Vespers, we talked about how Vespers was sort of his audition piece, as it were, for um, an exit point from this very odious workload that he found himself in in Mantua. He was working, I mean, he worked hard in St. Marco, but I think he worked harder for less pay in Mantua. And he felt, uh, you know, as the leading composer of his generation, um, he... Uh, he probably felt um, a little, um, he, it galled him to be in this position. And so St. Mark's was kind of the place that he needed to be. And when he, when he arrived, yes, his workload was enormous, but he had an enormous amount of personnel to help him. And that would have been in stark contrast to Mantua, where he was constantly complaining, like Bach, like all of us, about the problems with personnel. So St. Mark was quite luxurious, actually. So he had a, he had a choir of over 40 singers, he had two organists that he was able to use and also a vice maestro so that someone else who helped compose and do some of the, um, because he had to literally create music. You know, nowadays we just choose music in a church, for example. We don't compose it. But in his day, he obviously had to make it, which was kind of extraordinary. But in addition to those forces I've just mentioned, Genevieve, there also were instruments. They just called it the concerto. And it was this sumptuous array of what we now would call Renaissance instruments. And they're things like sackbuts, dulcians, the ancestor of the bassoon, um, cornetti, violins, vials. Things like the cello were not invented yet. Things like the double bass were not invented yet. And so when you look through this publication, which we can talk about in more detail too, you'll see some little hints that Monteverdi gives to how you might orchestrate these. But as ever, and this is what draws me to music of the 17th century, nothing is set in stone. In fact, Monteverdi and his contemporaries encourage us to be pragmatic and they encourage us to uh, suit the music to the circumstances in which you find it. And that's because that was their reality as well. Exactly. People coming and going, travelling, sick, not available. Exactly. They needed the show to go on, right? Very much like we find ourselves in Our a pandemic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, um, but also the wonderful thing about this particular publication to return to the spiritual forest was that it was meant to be a practical compendium of sacred music for use by other churches, other noble houses, uh, private chapels. It was a repository of music that could be used in, in other places where there weren't, where composers were either, um, the chapelmeisters were under a great deal of stress <laughs> trying to get through the liturgical calendar. But also it was the beginning of this idea of a work, Genevieve, of something that's reproducible outside the confines of its local tradition. Um, you know, we think about Beethoven's Fifth. You know, it exists everywhere. Where does it exist? Is it in Beethoven's manuscript? We all can hum the opening it's bars. Car. It's in my car. It's on my computer. <laughs> it's on my phone. We can bring it, we can summon it, summon it into existence at any point. Obviously, in the 17th century, if you wanted to make music, you had to write it first. But this is the beginning towards that Beethoven sort of syndrome, as it were, where the work can be reproduced by other people in other cities. And so Monteverdi took a great deal of care about that because his name was attached to it. So if there was a... Uh, he wanted to make sure that the parts were as, were as correct as possible to reproduce a beautiful performance elsewhere because his name was attached to it. So it's a really interesting moment in music history. And I can see that that's almost the sort of 
beginning of the long thread that links right through to the control freak composition of the 20th century where we had like a, an extraordinary number of directions on the page with dynamics and tempi and exactly. sort of thing, articulation. Coming back to the piece and San Marco, I wanted to ask you, and I think now I know the answer, um, where Gabrielli was writing music, site-specific music, his antiphonal brass canzonas and that sort mm. of thing, Monteverdi was doing the same or different? Yeah, well, this collection has um, a lot of pieces for what we call mixed choirs, and that's what I've also sort of chosen. So four, two groups of four singers each. Um, oh, sorry, five singers each often. So it's that old 17th century five singer uh, version, or four in fact. So it, there's lots of different constellations of different voice types. And... Um, in our two venues, um, City Recital Hall in Sydney and also Melbourne Recital Centre, will be just we can't actually do what you might do in a in a glorious space like a Cathedral or St Mark's, which which has quite a separation between those two bodies of instruments and singers. Um, but we do have some separation, so you can hear that extraordinary interplay, contrapuntal interplay that Monteverdi excelled at, and of course Gabrielli innovated. So yes, that's correct. There's a lot of um, antiphonal effects in, in Salve Morale Spirituale. Beautiful. And in terms of the voice types, what have you got on stage? So we have a whole bunch of singers. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, the interesting thing about the 17th century voice type, when you look at the soprano, what we would call a soprano, um, the ranges of all the voices are quite extreme. Um, so it's not, it's not the kind of tessitura that, that was much later. The 17th century singer was expected to sing very high and very low in all voice types. So that can be a challenge for our singers, but we have some of the best singers in Australia. I now find myself thinking, um, what does that tell us about the physiology of people in the 17th century? Like, were they tall, short? I feel like everyone was shorter. I think they were. <laughs> but they were still able to reach the extremes of the range, which is an interesting idea. Well, a colleague and I were just... Um, uh, talking the other day because he's doing some research and um, there's a wonderful letter that Monteverdi writes to a colleague in which um, they're discussing the employment of a bass singer and Monteverdi writes and explains what he considers to be good in a singer and this is really great to hear because they're talking about how much he will get paid and he gets paid an enormous amount apparently and Monteverdi writes back and he says oh look he's really good but he's not that good and he's not that good because of these reasons and he sets out things like um, he's unable to do his sort of um, I mean there's a whole bunch of them I don't want to bore you too much into detail but um, he can't sing the passaggi and the passaggi are those fast notes that you'll hear in our performance mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like instruments but the voices do them as well and it's clear from treatises of the time that the articulation of those passages the passaggi was done with the throat (laughs) that kind of thing which a lot of modern singers uh, were taught not to do because glottal articulation or throat articulation um, interferes with the legato line I mean, modern 21st century. century. Uh, What what you might call a bel canto technique, um, which that's another can of worms, which we can discuss another (laughs) Another time. time. But yeah, so a lot of singers um, are taught not to do those passaggi that I just did very terribly with the throat, sort of like a ha 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 ha, like a giggle, but more it's ah, all the lines are connected with a beautiful legato. And we, we just know that they didn't do it that way. And Monteverdi says that this singer can't do the passaggi in a loud, uh, in a large setting. He can only do it as in a chamber setting, which is really interesting to us because it means that there's some singers were able to project 
in larger spaces, and that must have been really important for Monteverdi in the chapel at St Mark's, which which by all accounts is enormous. Have you been, Genevieve? To St Mark's? Yeah. I have. I went once when I was 17 years old and Amazing. went to the Australian Youth Orchestra, and I ate the best meal of my life in the place, just to, if you're looking at the cathedral, just to the left. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, our <laughs> listeners will remember that. Is it, is it big? Like, can you tell me, like, what? Because yeah, I've just seen pictures, but I actually don't know, like... The enormity of the space. But I think I remember you telling me that you've never been to Venice. We have discussed this, and <laughs> whenever I talk, yes, I've never been to Italy, unfortunately. In my head, I've been to Italy many times, but I travel to Italy every time I perform Monteverdi, yeah. and our audience do too, so this is an opportunity for us to, to basically time travel and close our eyes for a second and just enjoy the purity of, of this music. Now, you mentioned the moral mandrigals being excised for this performance uh, and that instruments are often very involved in that. Are there instruments in stage for the spiritual side? Absolutely, and yeah. Using yeah, so we have Monteverdi, as I said earlier, he gives little hints in this publication. Now, this particular late publication of Selve Morale et Spirituale was a really complex publishing event. Like we, we tend to think of publishing, we don't think about publishing very much because um, it's something that we're so used to the book mm. and we're so used to how that, that modern, but of course at the time, in the 1640s, it was an enormous technological feat to get all that movable type, people in, in, a, in a space had to put every little note together, yeah. make sure it was correct, do it back to front, yeah. and then print it onto pages and make sure that all the pages turned in the right place, that they were in order. Now, you didn't do this for one book. What's extraordinary about this book publication is there are 11 part books. There's no score either. So this is a fascinating thing. Monteverdi, the only score that was ever, ever published in Monteverdi's lifetime of his own work was, was L'Orfeo, which is absolutely extraordinary because in Italy then, there was no other score of an opera published until Rossini. Because you, when you go to archives, you find parts often yeah. because they, the work only comes into existence through its performance. Um, and this is something that my colleagues and I talk about as specialists a lot, because actually when you do work from a score, you're kind of cheating away in a way, because you can see everything on the page. Whereas uh, a conductor working from these part books in the 1640s, let's say you bought these 11 books and you handed them out to singers and instrumentalists, literally it would have been a, an instrumentalist reading over the shoulder of a singer and just looking at the directions that are there because there were no photocopies. If you wanted to copy that, you had to actually get the manual labour and copy it out, which we do see in collections when people had to make extra parts, they, they wrote it out by hand. So it was a complex performative act. And when you do that, also there are no bar lines. So you are just counting like crazy and you're following a conductor who is making sure the tactus and we have really a lot of descriptions about how conductors did this. Tactus um, meaning the beat or the, the beat. And so there's up and down, uh, you know, and also so... It, Just for you listening, Aaron's sort of got his arm at right angles out from his shoulder and he's waving at me like some kind of, kind of sideshow animal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doll, yes. let's say. That's the up and down. And that's, that's authentic conducting if you wanted to do it. And maybe some attentive people in the audience noticed that I started the Vespers that way as a sort of homage to ah. 17th century practice last. And also what's unusual about that um, and another, maybe some attentive people in the audience might have noticed that there was no... A modern conductor conducts in three like a triangle. And I'm just describing a triangle now where the top of the triangle is um, the, uh, the third beat 
and the, the first corner of the triangle is the downbeat. Now, they never did that in the 17th century. They did three, like one, two, three. And right now I'm just putting my hand down. There's only two beats, but the first one is two beats long. And when you do, when you do conduct that way, it changes the way people perform, I'm which sure. is really fascinating. And we tried it briefly, but sadly we don't always have as much rehearsal time as I would like. And right. so we, we did it for the first opening piece, and then I resorted to more slightly, like, like conducting techniques that were 60 years after yeah the 1640s. Oh, fascinating. Um, If uh, I was to ask you to nominate, let's say, two musical standout moments for you in the spiritual forest, what would that be? As I said, that Monteverdi, in these scores, he suggests instruments. He says, you can double this with um, four trombones, as you wish, you know, he says. So in addition to our wonderful crew of singers, we have an amazing crew of 17th century specialists from the Orchestra of Antipodes. We have two violins, which are written in the part, so Monteverdi wrote a separate part for these two violins. We have what's called the basso continuo, and that is myself on organ, um, Simon uh, Martinellis on theorbo, and Hannah Lane on harp. And they're 17th century instruments that we know we used all the time. And then filling up the gap, we have Laura Vaughan on uh, lirone and gamba. We have Anton Barber on cello. And then we have three sackbuts and one cornet. So we have four stringed instruments, two violins, gamba and cello, and we have four wind instruments, a cornet and three sackbuts. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the basso continuo. And that mirrors the eight singers that we have as well. And is as Monteverdi suggests, you can replace one choir of singers with instruments. And in fact, one work, I've done something quite interesting. Um, the crediti, we're not having singers at all. And so... We know that sometimes to create moments in the liturgy or indeed just music, people just performed sacred works as instrumental works. And so there's a, a, a broken choir, as it were, um, piece, which I'm going to give the singers a rest and we're just going to have strings on one side and wind on the other. And in the 17th century, they called it that a broken consort. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Um, A broken consort is when you've got different kinds of instruments uh, dialoguing together. Mm -hmm. So what I really went for, Genevieve, is a mix of colour and texture. And so the two standout moments, um, I I begin and end the the, the concert with Dixit Dominus's. And they're really interesting works because they are the ones redolent with word painting. Mm -hmm. They've got really wonderful things about... um, uh, the Old Testament God that we know and love who uh, wreaks judgment upon uh, upon the world. And we certainly know about uh, the vic- vicissitudes of nature as we live through a pandemic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, Monteverdi uses all of his operatic skills to paint these destructive images and also things like rivers. And So it's a beautiful moment where you've got a lot of texture and I, I deliberately chose to begin and end with those because they have the so much, I, I want to use inverted inverted commas drama Mm. they're theatrical Mm. but then there are lots of laudatory pieces as well just pieces in praise of creation um, and the beauty of the universe and Monteverdi always sets those in really joyful dance-like modes so I've really included those and then there's to contrast the point of the triangle drama in one point and then we have joy in the other there's contemplation and and and, uh, melancholy and that's the more inward meditative pieces about, about one's personal relationship with God. Um, 
there's a confitia bore, there's also the Marian pieces that um, are in homage to Mary. So I guess if I had to cho- chose two works that I find the most touching, um, though all of them are beautiful, um, the opening Dixit Dominus is really special. He wrote many of them in the Salvo, one's called Dixit Dominus Secondo, so number two. And then the other one I really love is actually the complete opposite. So it's the richest work that we have in the program. All the instruments are used, all the voices. You have solos popping in and out of the texture and all the word painting I mentioned. And then the other moment is the complete opposite. And it's just for two voices and continuo. And it's a bit like when you go into a cathedral, the Dixit Dominus is looking at all the grandeur of the cathedral. And then this moment, the Salva Regina, is like going up to a single candle and just contemplating the beauty of the flame. And it's just literally two voices and continuo. And you can see what a great composer like Monteverdi can do with such sparse resources. And it's equally as beautiful. It sounds, Erin Hellyard, like you're actually drawing a triangle of drama, joy and contemplation around our lives from the last couple of years with everything that everyone has had to cope with. So I feel like this concert might offer some catharsis, actually. Absolutely. And I was just talking to Kerry Beebe, who tunes our instruments, and we were just talking about the temperament for this. And he said, um, and we'll be going with quarter comma mean tone, which um, to our listeners is a very special temperament that you've you've heard now if you've come to Pinch Cup performances, and you may not have realised why you enjoy it, but... Unlike your modern piano at home, all the thirds are pure. They're completely pure and very restful. So all the chords that Monteverdi uses, there's a, there's a purity and joy to it. And I said to Kerry, yes, it's the temperament for our times. Yeah. You know, it's, it's restful and peaceful and sublime. And um, at the same time, there are chords that are very spicy and dissonant. When you play a chromatic line, it sounds, it sounds really tormented. And I think we can all relate to those feelings at the moment. <laughs> A concert for our time. Erin Hilliard, thank you very much.